2: Laura Carstensen is the godmother, the fairy godmother of happiness research. And I think you're going to fall in love with Laura when you listen to this episode. But again, I've, for more than a decade, I've been researching uh, something similar, ways to, to help our audience and for people to find happiness in retirement. And very often, the data that I find comes straight out of Stanford University. Now, there's a whole team there. But it turns out that that's due in large part to Laura. She's a professor of psychology and public policy and the director of the Stanford Center on Longevity. She's part of the team that generates so much of the game-changing information that I've used to advise my clients and readers and listeners. I would have to call Laura after this episode She, in, in talking with her, she... I guess is my muse or maybe better, my spirit animal. And I didn't even know it. So I have no doubt that she can be yours as well. Sit back and let her wisdom blow your mind. I'm Wes Moss. The prevailing thought in America is that you'll never have enough money and it's almost impossible to retire early. Actually, I think the opposite is true. For more than 20 years, I've been researching, studying, and advising American families, including those who started late, on how to retire sooner and happier. So my mission with the Retire Sooner podcast is to help a million people retire earlier while enjoying the adventure along the way. I'd love for you to be one of them. Let's get started. Laura, thank you for being with us. The you know, your research over many years and probably a much more I would say official capacity, uh, and I want to be listening to you even more than I want to listen to my own <laughs> books, but the be, because you are a, a professor of psychology and a psychologist, and you know you've stu- and, and and what you studied, and and obviously your book "A Long Bright Future" r- comes right into the intersection of retire sooner. Uh, you even talk about how uh, I want to actually ask you. We'll get to this. Uh, those who retire r- maybe really early. What's the issue with cognitive decline? But uh, so there's all these other things I want to get to, but maybe I want to start with just this thought around if as we get older, are we happier and maybe describe, I've read a lot about the happiness U curve where we start happy, we get a little less happy. And then we, and then over time, as we age, we get to retirement, we, happiness levels tend to rise. So let's start with that. Is that true? Do you believe that?
1: Well, the studies you just described and with findings that are referred to as the U-shape of happiness are actually studies of life satisfaction. So they're asking people uh, not questions about specific emotions, you know, are you angry? Are you sad? Or how often are you excited? They're asking people to evaluate their lives and what the finding is is that younger people tend to say things are great, In the middle years, less so, and then as people get older, they start to say, yeah, they're, they're terrific, you know, again. The findings about emotion are actually a little different, and that is there's more of a linear change from young adulthood to older adulthood where uh, people experience fewer and fewer negative emotions over time. And there's some evidence that they're experienced more positive emotions. So, so if you're talking about emotion or you're talking about satisfaction, you get slightly different profiles.
2: But let's dive into that because yeah. it, the the reality here. So, I, I interviewed Emily Estefani Smith, who was uh, studied positive psychology, and I I remember her talking about is the reason I had her on this uh, on the Retire Sooner podcast is that she kind of did a little jab at the word happiness. Like we're all we're you know, we're looking for happiness and really it's not about happiness, it's about purpose. And and I and it's made me think because I write about happiness. And the reality here is that it's really just a catch all umbrella type word that is, I think colloquially, if I can say that correctly, maybe at the some part it's part life satisfaction and it's part emotion. But yeah. Maybe we can, you and I, let's, you and I dive in. What are the differences yeah. between those two? Yeah.
1: I, I, you're exactly right. And these are important distinctions. I, I think when you, in the literature and the headlines and newspapers, when they say older people are happier, I think that the, the definition there is something like, I'm good. I'm doing okay. <laughs> okay.
0: Right?
1: It, it's not how happy are you on a scale of one to 10. And if we ask that question, there's very little difference between younger and older people. Uh, so if you really focus in on a specific emotion, then happiness looks pretty evenly distributed, regardless of age. Uh, the real action comes with age in having fewer negative emotions. So some, in some of our work, what we've done is to uh, subtract po- negative emotions from positive emotions and come up with a term on balance. So it's kind of like on balance, I'm doing very well. If you calculate well-being or happiness, doing well that way, uh, it looks like people do better and better across uh, the life course. But it's different. And you know, here's the other thing I'll add is that life satisfaction is a cognitive question. It's an evaluation. Generally, when you ask somebody if they're satisfied with their life, they're not just focusing on emotional feelings. It's have I made it to this point I thought I would? How do I compare to other people? How do I compare to my life today versus five years ago? And that is, that that's a very deliberative kind of a judgment about one's life. It's not a, how happy are you or how sad are you? That's a different question.
2: So I wonder then too, if, if I were to, again, it's too late to update my book, but if I were to- <laughs>
1: Well, and you're I, in good wish... company if your headlines aren't happiness.
2: So. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, so maybe it's too late to update this, but really what people then are, at, at, and I ask a series of different happiness questions, you know, how would you rate yourself on a happiness scale? What is your life purpose? And there's, a, there's several different things I ask, but really what it's probably coming back to is part emotion and part life satisfaction. And, and your point on sat- life satisfaction, it is a little bit of a measure of my life. Hey, I feel like I'm doing. I did. I've done okay up to here, you know. I I have some kids. I love them. Or I didn't want to have kids, and I'm great with that. Or I think the job went pretty well. Or it didn't go so well. And then and then you're talking about when you do this calculation or when you research on balance. Take just take me through that for a minute. So if somebody has. A couple positive, a couple negative, on unbalanced, maybe an example of that.
1: Well, I'll tell you about a study that we ran where we used a method called experience sampling. And we had people aged 18 to 95 carry electronic pagers back in the day we had pagers. And uh, we would sample them random times during the day, five times a day for seven days what are the ages
2: again, 18 to 18 what? 18
1: to 94 is the first sample. Then we followed them over time. So that, that that age range changes slightly, but pretty much the same. And so you're carrying a pager and it's just, you're going on with your life and you hear a beep and we ask you to stop. And then what people tell us is the degree to which they're feeling each of 19 different emotions. Some of those are positive emotions like excitement, calm. Uh, joy. Some of them are negative emotions like sad, fearful, anxious. Um, And we collect all those data. And initially, by the way, we thought the positive emotions would be easily to distinguish. Joy would look different than happiness and so on. And then the negative emotions, we really thought like sadness would be different than anger and all. But it looks like these Positive emotions, the set of them, and the set of negative emotions track each other pretty well. Um, So we we just collapsed those two groups, the positive ones and the negative ones. And as I said when we first started talking, positive emotions don't increase so much very much by age. They do a little bit, and some studies find this too. But the real action is that people are reporting to us that they're Feeling negative emotions less frequently
2: hmm, becomes less. So we have similar positive emotions throughout our life cycle, but for some reason we're we're having less and less negative emotions.
1: So on balance, on you're balance. happier. Yeah,
2: you're you're more positive. Then what is this happiness U curve? Uh, what 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 is the relationship with that? Is
1: the, the you, it's, this is, what's interesting is they're not that that's strongly life satisfaction. related. <laughs> the, yeah, life satisfaction is this evaluation of life, which is a different thing than emotional trajectories across life. The way I describe it to people is if I say to you, how satisfied are you with your life? You go into this judgment evaluation, as you were describing a minute ago. If I say, Wes, right now on a scale of one to 10, how angry are you? It's a different source. It's a very different question. And what we wanted to know is how do people feel emotionally as they go about their daily lives, which is a different question than how satisfied they are. In fact, you could be really happy when I sample you, but say, you know, I really haven't. I, I, I Compared to other people, I'm pretty much a failure, even compared though I enjoy podcasts, my life.
2: We don't get nearly enough listeners. I feel low. <laughs> If but I feel pretty good about life in general. I'm yeah. happy today because it's 81 and sunny. Outside. There you go. Okay, so this is great. I, if you were so, there's two. So I'm getting smarter about around <laughs> this. Is a good. It's a good sign because it means our audience is learning something. And that so we, we think of the U curve is more life satisfaction, mm-hmm. and when it comes to emotions on balance being more positive than negative, it's more of a direct relationship over time. There you go. Touchdown. Yes, okay. and it's now, getting better. As we get and older, getting, and now why, why, mm. why do these negative, why do we start, why do we have less negative emotions over time? I love this.
1: Yeah, I think it's one of the best kept secrets about aging. Um, there's something called a, the misery myth that I talk about a lot. People just assume when you talk about loneliness or depression or anxiety, it must be greater in older people, given that old age is so terrible. I mean, that's kind of how we think um and this 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 um is often referred to as the paradox of aging in, in it is one of the most scrutinized findings in aging research because nobody believed it including the scientists so you know when these findings first started to come out people said oh, it's masked depression. They're just not not admitting to the depression, you know. And then some other people said, well, it's because of cognitive decline. So older people just can't focus enough attention on how lousy they feel to really work up a good lather, you know, of negativity. <laughs> so there was an, all of these questions. And other people said, by the way, it's a brain Issue, you know that the amygdala uh, atrophies, and so we just can't feel emotions the way we did when we were young. All of the things I just uh, uh, raised; these issues uh, have been examined, and none of them are uh, supported with evidence. So, th- from a th-
2: the thesis for many years was that we do really the, the, the pa- we do get less happy over time. And then, when did you when did that get debunked? And was that you? Mm-hmm you you were the essentially, you were the you were the the the, the doctor that did this. You're the doctor that debunked this.
1: Uh, my group and I, yes, we did a lot of work on on this issue. Other people did too, of course. So uh, as in most you know, sort of scientific you know areas, there are a lot of people contributing to it. But yes, we did a lot of work, my group in this. and and in part, it's because we developed a theory called socio-emotional selectivity theory, worst name ever for theory. And uh, that theory has generated a lot of research. The theory was developed to try to account for the fact that you see rates of positive emotions uh, staying stable, negative emotions going down, despite the very real problems people face as they get older.
2: Socio-emotional and connectivity.
1: Selectivity theory.
2: Selectivity Were you at Stanford, by the way, when all this, did you do all this while at Stanford?
1: Almost all of it, yes. I was, I've been at Stanford for 30 years, so yes, a long time.
2: So that's why there's so much research that comes out of Stanford that I read about. It's because of you.
1: (laughs) Well, you're giving
2: me way too much credit. We should get her on the show. We should get (laughs) Laura on the show. She's the one that, that she's, you're like the godmother (laughs) of all the happiness research. (laughs) Our producers are so good. You. <laughs> I've read your work tangentially for so many years, and it's all its all your fault. Uh, uh, in a good way. In a good in way. A good so way. You, <laughs> yeah, you're, maybe, you're part of my inspiration to, to have probably gone down this path about 10 to 12 years ago. Okay, so mm. you've said that the, the thesis was that we... Uh, we're just kind of we our brains are dumbed down so yeah. that we don't feel negative emotion. Yeah. You you disproved that, but right. wh- but why then?
1: So the 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 mechanism that we think is is accounting for much of this of age effect is time horizons, and that is that the older we get, uh, the less time we see in our futures. Um, that is, the older we get, the more likely we are to die, right? So where life is limited, it's a fixed period of time, and when we're young, we see the future and our future time horizons as infinite, essentially. Um, and there, the time seems and our opportunities seem like anything could happen. We could, any, you know, uh, we've got all the time in the world, And we need to prepare because anything could happen. So there's a lot of things we need to do. But as people get older, time ahead of them is viewed as more constrained. And if there's a paradox of aging, we think it's that as people are running out of time, so to speak, they're actually doing better emotionally. We believe that that's because of the basic economic kind of principle that the less of something you have, the more valuable it is.
2: Yeah. So and as so, my supply of time goes down, it becomes more valuable to me cognitively. Right. And for some reason, we've been designed to appreciate that. And it starts to out. Well, again, we said that emotion didn't go up. Neg- or positive emotion didn't go up. Negative emotion just started to go away. I guess it. it's still a function of this time horizon. Right.
1: What what we 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 what we've shown in a lot of different studies is that our goals change when time horizons are are long. Uh, we tend to be exploring and collecting and taking risks. When time horizons are shorter, we tend to focus on the present, live in the moment, and we pursue goals that are meaningful that are important to us. Um, I say to students in classes, imagine we knew this was the last year of our lives. Something was going something to happen. This would be it. How many of you would still want to take this course? And, you know, they're all gone by the time I finish that sentence. You know, they've walked out of the room. <laughs> um, we're not so interested in preparing when we don't have a lot to prepare for. And in some ways, I think the emotion story of aging is one about being relieved of the burden of the future, so when we're young, we're constantly having to prepare. We're worried about so many things that might happen or might not. Uh, are we going to meet our soulmates? Are we going to be happy when we do 50 years later? Are we going to get a good job? Um, everything is about the next step. Uh, we It's hard for young people to just live in the moment. But the older we get, the easier that is. And when we do live in the moment, we stop and be, you know, uh, quaint we you know we stop and smell the roses we notice the bird and the tree the the beautiful blue in the sky and life feels better
2: the burden of the future yeah the burden of the future it starts to wane happiness levels go up or on balance happiness levels go up
0: right hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm
2: here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th Do you want to tell people the
0: big news all right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month and six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG.
2: What about during COVID? Do you think that, let's say, older folks fare better? Yeah. During yeah, COVID it, or now?
1: It's a really interesting question, and and it's interesting theoretically too because selectivity theory, um, the selectivity in it is saying people are more, uh, they've honed their environments, their social networks, so we're we're more selective. And there's another theory uh, uh, that that uh, refers to this selection process is something that older people need in order to do well. And if older people were exposed to an inescapable prolonged stressor, they would do much worse than younger people would because they don't have the biological physiological capacity to regulate emotion. And so COVID appears and I'm talking to my research group and we say, you know, this is the time to test that hypothesis because it's an interesting hypothesis. And, and, but you could never do it in an experiment because it would be unethical, right? Let's bring older people into the lab and expose them to terrible things and don't let them escape. And so that's not going to happen. Hopefully that never will. But in a sense, it was happening. It was happening to all of us. It was inescapable. And COVID was a greater threat to older people yeah. than younger people by far. Uh, so. We ran the same kind of surveys we've done in the past, asked them about specific emotions, 19 different emotions, some positive, some negative. Older people are doing much better than younger people. And I think our group was the first to show that, but there are probably now a dozen other studies that have shown the same thing. And one of them, importantly, it, it, it surveyed people in s- more than 60 countries and looked at age differences and found the same kind of pattern.
2: And again, it's a similar hypothesis as to why.
1: Yep. And we think the age difference might have been a little bit changed in some ways, and that is that younger people actually were changing their goals too. So you could think of COVID as a priming of mortality, which is what we think happens as we grow older, is it? We increasingly are aware that life isn't going to go on forever. And so life becomes more precious uh, emotionally- so it almost
2: So it exacerbated that even more for yes. those who were in the older demographic. Right. That's so interesting. Okay. So what about, let's switch. It's funny. We're like a... I'd say a Bush league version of what you guys do at Stanford because during COVID we tried to do that. We did the same thing. Oh, we really did. We yeah. I went out and I said, let's try it. We have this time where everyone's trapped in the lab and we're, they're exposed to horrible things. Mm-hmm. Let's see how everyone's doing. Um, uh, the, the, the research we did was a little bit different around, um, seeing the importance of social connectedness and how, um, what the proclivity was in different age groups on trying to still remain social yeah. uh, and we've and we found of course this cor- direct correlation between more socialization more happiness and one of the things that I've done in longer studies is I call these close connections yeah and and because I friendship to me was not quite the perfect word I wanted it to be a little broader than friendship so I use this I describe it as close connections for socialization and 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 I always have found this, plateauing effect of money and happiness where there's a lot of increase in quote happiness in the early stages of accumulating money or earning money and then it plateaus. You probably started all that research now that we now I'm talking to you. Um, And and that that's proven out. So I think of this as the kind of money and happiness plateauing effect, more diminishing marginal happiness with new dollars, right? But I did not find that with socialization. I found just a straight line just more close connections More happiness, more close connections, more happiness, more close connections. And I'd love to hear your perspective on why that, A, do you agree with it? B, why is that? And C, let's also talk about social connectedness and longevity.
1: Great. Uh, Let me start with that, social connections and longevity. Yeah. Uh, People who feel like they are alone in the world, like they really don't have close connections, are – Higher risk of dying uh, at a level comparable to those people who smoke compared to non-smokers. It's big. We are social animals. And when we're isolated from others, when we feel alone, um, it's bad for our health. There are actual physiological detrimental effects. So close connections, I think, is the... That's the magic, what the way the term you just used and the, the questions you were asking people is about close connections and, and significant people in their lives. And that is essential for people throughout life, whether they're old or young. But we do see changes in social network size from early life, early adulthood to later adulthood. And there, these networks are getting smaller and smaller. Mm. And, again, when I first entered the field, a lot of people were saying, well, of course, older people must be doing terrible because we know social relationships are important, and they have smaller social networks. Shrieking. So we began to look at more qualitative aspects of those networks. And we asked people to name people in their social network, and younger people had more. But then we said, identify the people in that network who you really feel close to, who are so close you can't imagine life without. Turns out the number of close connections doesn't change with adulthood. So what we're doing with age is we're pruning our networks. Uh, We're getting rid of the riffraff, if you will. We're we're excluding (laughs) those people who are not particularly emotionally meaningful to us and we're retaining the ones that are and we think this also contributes by the way to well-being in old age because if you live in a world that's um uh, been distilled to include the best uh then that's pretty nice
2: what would be your opinion on the number of close connections i've read lots of different things over the years of we we've they've kind of gone down over time even though social media has brought maybe to your point more riffraff into the fold yeah Um, less less close close connections than we had 30 years ago i don't know if that's i've read that i don't know if that's true is there a number if you you put a number on this like how many close people you need in your life
1: three (laughs) there you go you got it um although that's three and among older people so So here's the thing about social connections and interactions: is that yes, we need them. And think for just half a second about where strong emotions come from. Negative, strong emotions almost always where do they come from? Other people. It's social. It's (laughs) friendships. It's connections. It's interactions. People drive you crazy. So yes, mother-in-laws. There we go. (laughs)
2: Except I love my mother-in-law, by the way. She's like one of my favorite people in the world.
1: but there is a kind of a prototype image that we can all come up with, right? Right.
2: That might be my mom. uh, I'm just kidding. I'm
1: kidding. Negative emotions also come from social relationships. So it really matters on what the, the, what's the nature of those social relationships and what's happening today. And I think it's especially sad for younger people, really younger people, teenagers, right? They're they're in contact with all, you know, thousands of people on social media and getting, they're comparing themselves and people are commenting on them and they're, and it's, that's horrible, you know? That, so it, it's like social relationships are the magic in life and they're also the, 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 the horrifying aspect of life, you know I mean? So it really depends on what those relationships look like. What's the nature of that network? Now, when we looked at older people, so we we did a study, when I said three, we ran a study, we, Frieder Lang and I, years ago, ran a study where we were looking at the content of these uh, social networks, and older people had fewer people in their network, but they were more, there were more, you know, on, uh, as a ratio of positive, close network relationships. And we said, but there must be, so pe- they're looking like they're in better mental health with fewer relationships until a point, we said, there must be a point where you've got too few close people in your life. Mm -hmm. And what we found in that study was the number was three. And I think it's that if you've only got three people in your life who you really can count on, uh, and probably especially if you're older, it's too risky. Mm. Uh, Things happen. Uh, People Mm. die, people get sick. Uh, There are limitations that people face. And so that's probably too, you you probably need more than that, is what Mm. we expect. So
2: wait, so you had said three, and then three plus really is you want to be let's call it yeah. four? Three plus is what we really need, right? Going yes. into retirement,
1: yeah. Don't go below three. Yeah, yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. It's funny the 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 in, in the chapter we did about social connectedness and and general happiness. It was on average, HROBs are happiest retiree group, uh, which we take our top two quintiles of reported happiness and the bottom two we cut out the middle and we compared yeah. those two groups yeah. the uh, was 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 about, was a little more than three and a half on the on the happy end and then it was it was two and a half for the unhappy group oh interesting um, yeah. so for what that's worth yeah feel send you my book to, for I need to send you my book for you to give me a grade I would have never I'm going to send you the book. As long as I get like a B minus or even a C plus, I would have never gotten into Stanford. So you would have never been my professor to begin Okay. Oh, hey, neither would I. Okay, <laughs> you know, I'm, just,
1: the, I'm um, just a professor. <laughs> you know, that, that's the other
2: thought is that I, I've, there, there is this thought around and, and practically we leave the workforce. So we retire. And even though your work people, let's say you're not, maybe not, you're, close connections they yeah. may very well be yeah but just all of the the uh, the epicenter of work with the opportunity to find other close connections because you have this lots of tentacles into the world that goes away for a lot of people and it i think it gets really tough yeah. do you guys ever what would you how do you make up for that and how do you uh, correct for leaving a big tentacle of, of socialization?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think the, uh, one of the core functions of work which we often overlook is that it provides for most people a sense of purpose. And so, it, yeah, there are social connections at work, and some are close, but uh, even more than that, it's we're needed. Uh, yeah. People in our, on our work teams need us whether we like them or not, and having something to get up for in the morning is important for all of us. And so that's, I think, a really important function of work. And people who retire and don't have other um, uh, sources of purpose, and many people do, but, but if you don't, then it can leave people feeling really empty.
2: Speaking of, you, you talk about that America in general, let's say, or uh, does tend to work too much Yeah, and we don't vacation enough. Right. And I'd like to hear your thoughts
1: on that. Yeah. I think we work really badly in this uh, society. Um, And what feels to me almost criminal is that we just inherited 30 extra years in life from our ancestors in the 20th century. They they handed us a gift of time, longer lives. (laughs)
2: Longevity. So we have so much more longevity, but we're going to work so much more for so much longer.
1: Well, what we did was we tacked all those extra years on at the end. Only old age got longer and everybody's complaining. <laughs> um, <laughs> young people are complaining. Old people are complaining. We're saying people need to save now more money than ever. You know, that pot of gold at the end has to get bigger and bigger and it's harder and harder. How are we going to support people with programs like Social Security when people are going to retire for for 30, maybe 40 years? You know, it's, and, and so it's a real problem what we did was we, we're working really hard now in the middle of life too extra hard because we got to save more money for later right yeah. so we're we're not happy as as happy as we could be with work in middle age because it's just too much and we have other things we want to do like we have kids to raise sometimes you have older relatives you're trying to provide some assistance to and we make it really hard because we put in too many hours
2: so that's what you refer to, Laura, as just when you say we work badly, we say we just work too much,
1: too way too much,
2: way too much,
1: way too much.
2: Yeah. Okay. Like what? Like like a sixty-hour week is way too much.
1: Way too much. Yeah. Probably a forty-hour work week is too much. You know, there's nothing magic about forty-hour work weeks. You know, this was Henry Ford, who, right. who who actually was cutting down the number of hours from fifty to forty when he said work week yeah. would be forty hours. So. Um, and now a lot of people, um, and pe- a lot of people are struggling to, to save for that pot of gold, you know, at the end. And they're working two jobs and stressed. And um, I'd like to see us work many more years past 62, and work fewer days in a week, and work fewer hours in a day.
2: God bless you, Hallelujah. We're changing <laughs> the schedule here at my whole firm. <laughs> Guys, we're going to a three-day work week, and we're going down from 10 hours down to six. Yeah. How would that? That wouldn't it be great. I'm looking around the studio here. Everyone's like, hallelujah. Yeah, <laughs> Some of them that. probably
1: left already just yeah, to go going. home. Yeah. Now, Microsoft in Japan decided to run an experiment uh, at their the, the, the office, and they went to four-day work weeks. Uh, the story as I read it is that they had to actually lock the doors because employees were trying to come in more and they measured productivity and productivity increased by 40% and four day work weeks. What? Yeah. And there are a few other studies I haven't seen, I must say I haven't seen a very large uh, sort of representative study of workers and different work, hours and going to and productivity uh, but there are a number of examples of that that companies have done that I read about you know in the newspaper or so on and they, I don't know of one that didn't see productivity go up
2: what a good advertisement yeah you're, you're literally I mean you're I'm really th- I'm actually thinking this through like maybe would be a great experiment for us to do that we now we still would need coverage so we'd have to say Still, you need everybody here. Some somebody needs to be available, but through balancing of schedules, you could just say, right. "Look, let's do four. Let's do four days for everybody." Yeah, huh. yeah.
1: I've thought about it too for my group, and I say, "There's let's let's say we're all here Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, so we see each other. Mm-hmm. But on these on on Tuesday, Friday, you you know, come in a few. You, you know, you decide. So there's always somebody around." um but that we don't have to be there all of us all the time and you know here's the here's another thought experiment think of how many hours a day you're really really working that is you're really on yeah and for most people that those hours as i ask people it's about four or five you know the rest of the time you're standing around yabbering with people or you're right Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah and then there's always you know there's always like birthdays and everybody's gotta come yeah. to the office and you know, all this stuff happens, right? We literally
2: have a birthday cake half eaten in our break room. <laughs> this is literally describing our lives. We hang out, we do podcasts. Yeah. We eat yeah. birthday cake. We right. celebrate each other's birthdays. Right.
1: Yay. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> Takes up like half the day, yeah.
1: Right. It does. So there's a lot of hours at work that we're not doing a lot of work. I think what's happening is if we went to fewer hours uh in a day and fewer days in a week, people would actually work more efficiently during that time
2: i'm very convinced of this uh in a very short period of time Uh, and i know that our studio is is too but what about vacations what because again i'm i am so guilty of the vacation thing and i've got four little kids i'm embarrassed to even say this but i had a a vacation recently paid for paid for and i did not go yeah did the kids go but but no one went Nope. because dad couldn't go and i and i said you guys why don't you just go with your why don't you, your mom you guys go and they were like well what's the you know i have all boys oh so they're like well who are we gonna play golf we like what are we gonna do on vacation and um and then i don't know i just I, that's embarrassing to even say i literally i've done this twice in my life i did this about uh, ten years ago I remember booking a house down in the Gulf coast of Florida a lot and these are not cheap right yeah. and and not being able to go because work got too busy right up close to it and then th- this pa- past re- the same thing happened right all these different things happening work and podcasts and media and book and wait a minute i can't I just can't get out of town for which is is exactly what you're talking
1: about yeah yeah it's a so why are vac- thing so you so tell did me to about the
2: It's terrible for my, I'm a terrible father. Retire sooner (laughs) than you think. I mean, it's, you know, I'm trying to do all of of the above and I'm the one talking about balance and sometimes I don't have it. You know, I'm just, you know, our our viewership just went down. No you, one's listening to the podcast. You, you are not. You are this not allowed. This guy's not even going on vacation. <laughs> and I'm talking about happy retirees. By the way, on average, take 2.4 vacations a year. Now, these are retirees. Unhappy retirees oh. take what? They take 1.4. So the happy retiree group actually takes an entire extra vacation per year. Statistically yeah. significant. Very real data. But what about these vacations? Why are they so good? Convince me.
1: Well, we're also really bad. We Americans at, at going on vacation. So you know. I would be willing to bet that the last time you actually did go on a vacation, you brought your handheld devices and your laptops and all this stuff. So we work even percent. while we're on yeah. vacation. Yeah. So the, the the good thing about breaking from work is that we're more creative. We're more rested. We want to come back um instead of feeling like
2: especially to that lower work schedule yeah right. especially down to the three day six three day a week six hour work week <laughs>
1: Yeah, imagine that you're 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 gung-ho to get back you can't wait to see your colleagues for those six hours and you know yeah yeah
2: so so there is some real recharging of course with vacations no, yeah. no question about it yeah um l- l- what about the long so so when we think about longevity in general There are all these implications around that, which you've kind of alluded to here. It's the gift of more time, but it's the burden of having to pay for it financially. We've got to to save more. Right. Um,
1: But now in this model of fewer longer working lives, that is more years, but fewer days in a week, you don't have quite the same burden and the strain of work of saving and saving and saving because your retired years are shorter.
2: If you just, if you plan on working a little bit longer, so you're just, you're lowering your overall RPMs. Right. And saying, we're going to go a little longer. Yep. So, which which is is something that I think we should think about, right? I mean, we don't think about that. We're so intent here on Retire Sooner podcast is getting to that point financially where we don't have to work mm-hmm. but you know maybe maybe we do have a version of that though Laura because my, our thought is that we do end up kind of working in our highest know, uh, our highest uh, specialization type you know the, the specialization of labor we, we don't necessarily get to choose the, the thing that we're the best at that makes us the most money we typically feel like we have to do that to maximize uh, our earning and savings but if we get to a point let's call it at 60 or 62, and we've saved almost enough, then I think of this in terms of this kind of this retirement gray zone where we go into another phase, whereas America is very black and white, retired, not retired. Right. And I, I think what, what I, I love this concept, and I think you're alluding to this, is that why not have a gray zone where you have another 10 years where you're doing something you, you really do love, right. and it may, may be a huge income hit, right? You may be making $200,000 a year, and the thing that you really love to do only is going to pay you 50000 yeah, but at least it's something, so you don't have to tap your assets maybe as much or at all.
1: That's right. Imagine you could you you delay if you were going to continue to work till you're eighty, ten to fifteen hours a week doing something as you're saying something you're really good at because most of us like doing the things we're good at, don't like doing the things we're not as good at. You work ten fifteen hours a week uh, if you're healthy till you're eighty, you can do really well with i mean you can save a lot less money because then you live on social security and your savings and your income i also you know we have this thing called loss aversion that we don't like seeing our savings go down when we right. don't have anything coming in but if we continued to work we'd have money we thought of as you know re- recharging re rejuvenating we're going to get that pot we're going to get another paycheck it's not that we're just losing which makes a lot of people nervous anxious yeah yeah you know, I liked. I you know, I I know what your your argument on retiring sooner, and I have a slightly different version of it. And I think people should retire early and often. That is, we we shouldn't just wait till we're older to go to these ten fifteen hours a week. Uh, when you're the parent of, for example, four young boys, you might want to put in fewer hours during that stage of life. Um, you might have another period in life where you decide to go back to school or just go do something very different for a year or two. We could have different pots of money we're using, we're saving for aspiring to, so that we can do different things. We don't have to wait until we're old to get to the leisure stage in life. Let's, let's, uh, interweave leisure and work throughout and education too, by the way.
2: The, I wanted to ask you about, you know, we, again, we think about loneliness is obviously a, a problem, but we, we, we think about the, the, the factors that, that have us exit early. And I've, I remember um, Wall Street Journal did an article several years ago, uh, that said it essentially said that the dangers of retiring early or why an early retirement will kill you. It was a, you know, a great headline from Wall Street Journal. And a lot of it was that there are there's a lot of different statistics around, you know, that there's a spike in mortality when we turn age sixty two. Right. There's a uh, we do tend to get less active and all the bad things like watching too much TV, smoking, drinking too much, all these things. And we know that that all kind of kills us. Those are the kind of the standards, like, of course. But what are some of these other variables that maybe beyond just not smoking and lack of exercise that that helps with longevity that might not be in those kind of core categories that we kind of already know?
1: Well, if I can make one comment on that literature on retirement, uh, people who retire early are more likely to die than people who continue working. Uh, but if you control for if they're sick before they retired, that association is much reduced, if not eliminated in the
2: studies. Okay, so some of the studies are a little bit biased. It's is though well, it's, it's it, perp- it
1: goes the causal direction is the other way around. Yeah, sick okay. people retire because they can't work any longer. And yeah. a lot of jobs make us sick. So this is not trivial but it's not it doesn't mean retirement caused it Mm, um okay
2: so that's chalk that up to fitting the statistics to the the scary headline of the wall street journal i can't believe they would do that
1: (laughs) amazing no nor would any any newspaper no um the factors that we know predict longevity are ones you just really listed already uh uh it's exercise and then it's exercised, then it's exercised. I mean, that's huge. Okay. Okay. Uh, a sense of purpose is contributes a lot. And for a lot of us, that sense of purpose really comes from our close relationships. And so mm. close relationships are also, are, are also predicting uh, uh, longevity. But that's really it. So that's wait, that's interesting.
2: Know. So you're saying that, that our close relationships give us a sense of purpose because we're...
1: Sure, for many of us. I mean, people count on us, our loved ones. Mm. Um, there are, I often think um, it's true for really old people. You know, some people say, well, if you're 90 years old, 95, and you can't really work anymore, and you can't really get around, boy, if you're the matriarch of a family that adores you, you are serving a very important, a very important purpose uh, for yeah. them. And it, it, you don't have to do anything. You're just, you're there for them. They know you. They love you. And you, they know that you love them, and that, that, that's a really important purpose in life. And then, you know, in the end, it might be the most important purpose of all.
2: Mm. And, it, and it helps with longevity. What about, what about money? Have you guys ever studied just wealth and longevity? Yeah. What's that look like?
1: Yeah, so um, you do see a relationship between, uh, 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 well, you see a relationship between education and income and length of life. Uh, You see a relationship with education and income and functional health. That is, are you healthy enough to work? Not how many diseases that you have. You know, if you have hypertension or whatever, it's not that. It's can you live on your own, drive a car, pay your own bills? If you look at health that way, functional health uh, is strongly related to income and education. Looks like education is actually the better predictor of Hmm. that than the two. As you might imagine, they... They they track together. Higher education sure. is is correlated strongly with higher income, uh, but it looks like in, in people who have tried to tease out those factors, uh, conclude that education is probably a little more important than income.
2: So if I circle back to this earlier question that I we started with is about the worry of cognitive decline, if we retire a little early, I think you've kind of almost answered that throughout here. That it, it's really a combination of all of these things which is exercise well it's purpose and close connections kind of continuing to be this positive feedback loop so that we don't go into cognitive decline is, is the cognitive cognitive de- decline more about i'm working and i'm really working my brain versus i just have social connections are they is one a better mental exercise to, to stave off cognitive decline or does it not matter as much
1: it looks like brains need stimulating environments uh, brains, uh, uh, respond to stimulation, uh, and that strengthens, uh, you know, neural connections and synapses. And so that's really good for us. Uh, but exercise is often, often probably one of the best things people can do sort of prescriptively for cognitive performance as well. Um, you know, our brains need oxygen. Exercise is helping, you know, blood supply and so on. so. Uh, exercise is also something really important for for aging and cognition. Uh, brain games, if I can insert this. So if you think oh, you're gonna get brain games, yeah,
2: <laughs> maybe we'll title this podcast that. I like that brain, brain games. games. <laughs> yeah, tell me about brain games. They don't
1: work. Uh, so <laughs> oh, <okay>. never <laughs> mind.
2: Uh, here it is. Here's the title: Brain games don't work.
1: Or, yeah. The, or here just it is. Never no, mind here, here brain it is. games. Yeah. The
2: danger of brain games.
1: <laughs> well, here's the danger of them. You usually sit when you do them, and you really need to get up and exercise. So, um, but it looks like these brain games that turned into a huge industry, sort of exploiting people's fears of cognitive decline, uh, are, it, are really you get better at the games, but the ga- they don't transfer <laughs> to the rest of your life. So. Uh, a, a very distinguished uh, cognitive aging researcher, Werner Shia, was asked once uh, when he was giving a talk, how many Sudoku puzzles do I need to do every day? And he said, it depends on how many you can get done during your 30-minute walk.
2: <laughs> oh, that's cool. I, I love that. Yeah. Gosh, I love that. The world as we all know has changed so much and your financial situation has likely changed too. How you adapt to that change has a massive effect on your future. Maybe your mom or dad's health has declined. Maybe you recently had a baby or got a divorce or inherited some unexpected money and you aren't sure how to invest it. Maybe you're one of the 3 million people who reportedly retired early due to the pandemic. Or perhaps you didn't retire, but your company decided to softly push you out the door. It's happened so much at some of America's biggest companies, they've even come up with a new word for it, surplusing, as in there's a surplus of humans and you're one of them, as if downsizing wasn't bad enough. And if you're facing that change, should you take pension payments monthly, or a lump sum, a rollover IRA, or something else? You may also be stuck in a static portfolio with the outdated 60-40 stock bond ratio that assumed interest rates and inflation would never go up. We are in the middle of the largest financial shift that we have seen in more than 40 years. Tectonic plates are shifting. We've moved from no inflation to hyperinflation, zero interest rates to higher interest rates. If you have questions about how to adapt to that or adjust to all these changes, just give us a call. Or better yet, find us at yourwealth.com. You can meet with a real live person in Atlanta or Tampa or Denver or Phoenix, or we can just do it over Zoom. I just had a great meeting with some wonderful folks from Cleveland. Yeah, Cleveland, Ohio. If we can get to know each other over Zoom, so can you and I. So reach out to our team at Capital Investment Advisors, the website, yourwealth.com. That's Y-O-U-R, wealth.com. All right. So last thing, and, and this has been one of the quickest hours I can ever remember. Um, what are you working on next? Because again, you're kind of the epicenter of all this, of social and uh I guess, thinking through the psychology of happiness and the sociology of it. And, and again, I've been reading your work for so many years. What's what's kind of next on the horizon for you guys?
1: Well, you know, they're, they're all really interconnected. I don't have to say this to you. That is financial security, education, exercise, friendships, all of these things interact um, to lead to long and healthy lives or short, unhappy lives. And We have begun a project at the Stanford Center on Longevity that we call the New Map of Life. And what we're trying to do is to take that challenge that I proposed to you a few minutes ago. That is, we got 30 extra years of life. Life expectancy almost doubled. Let's zoom out, start from the beginning, go all the way to the end and say, how would we create a world that will support people from early life to very late life in ways that at every stage they feel a sense of belonging, purpose, and worth. That involves rethinking education, rethinking the nature of family, rethinking friendships, rethinking work, rethinking financial security. How do we achieve it? Uh, how do we make sure that uh, it isn't long lives are not just about a small percentage of affluent people? But that we can create a world where the majority of people arrive at later life uh, financially secure, mentally sharp, and physically fit. We're gonna do that.
2: I love that the new map. The new map. Uh, the new the new map of life. I think we're gonna we're gonna wrap it there. So, listen. Thank you so much, Laura. Really, just a uh, a really fun uh, conversation around all the things that you've studied forever. And and the things that I think our audience really cares about, because it's, I think it almost foundational where we have this, you got money, let, let's get the money part f- first. And then all these building blocks on top of it, it may be even better to think about it as the, as a web as they're all equally important. And the web has to be the social connections and the money, yeah. as opposed to almost this, you've got to get one at a time. I like the thought of having it all interconnected all the time.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I like it too. I think of them as three legs of a stool. Financial security is one of them. Uh, uh, But we need to bolster uh, uh, more than that. Um, What a pleasure it's been to talk with you. And I think what you're doing is so important, Wes. Thank you. Thanks for getting the word out and helping people think creatively about long lives.
2: Well, I'm going to to send you a book and only send me back a grade if it's a decent
1: one. Decent, (laughs) I'll take decent. Okay, decent.
2: What, what the Happiest Retirees Know, graded by <laughs> Professor Karstensen. All right, thank you, Dr. Carstensen. You got it. God bless you. Take care.
0: information.